Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chats with Kat on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. I'm your host, Kat. I hope you're all having a wonderful week so far. Don't forget to grab your coffee, tea, or a preferred beverage and settle on in. Today, I am currently here with Michelle, who is an author with her new novel, Who Am I? It's currently in stores now. Michelle, welcome to the show. And just tell us a little bit about who you are. Briefly introduce yourself to those who are listening. Thanks, Kat. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So as Kat introduced me, my name is Michelle Govro, or my author name is Michelle Rice Govro. I have a book out. Who It's called Who Am I? And the book surrounds my life regarding my illegal adoption, how I grew up, how I navigated my life through growing up in what we call white society. Backtrack a little bit. It starts with my my birth. I was born on a reservation in Canada, and my birth mother, who was very young at the time, she was being forced to give me up, and she didn't want to, but she didn't have a choice. So another Native man came in who was living in Connecticut. He was an iron worker. He came in and he said, hey, I'll adopt her. <laughs> there were no lawyers involved. There was just basically an oral agreement, and it just kind of went from there. He had me put on what we call roles on the reservation, who's, you know, whose child you belong to, whose, whose parent you belong to, basically. So he had me put on as his daughter, and I had, you know, benefits and whatnot through him. He died before I turned three, which was unfortunate. And I was left with a adoptive mother who did not know how to. She was a hoarder. She didn't let people in the house unless it was a sister or the occasional plumber or electrician. And it was very difficult growing up with a woman who at the time, and it was during the sixties and seventies that you did not talk about mental abuse or mental health. There was mental and physical abuse on, on her part towards me. And that was something you could not, at the time, you couldn't call the authorities because the authorities would say, oh, well, you just need to shape up and behave, you know, things like that. And that wasn't the case here. Fast forward, I learned about my adoption through another family member. And that family member should have never said anything because it was, I was a huge secret in the family. I was a big secret. Michelle was never supposed to know she was adopted, but turned out I was adopted and um, it kind of became a nightmare from there. I went to the reservation. I was 15 years old because I wanted to know my birth family. I thought, I thought in all fantasy land, I thought, oh, a family who's going to rescue me. Great. You know? So I went to the reservation. Well, it was a culture shock, you know, and I lived up there for at least three months and I, you know, it was during the summer. So it was after school. So yeah, about three months. And, but then I ended up coming back to Connecticut and ended up going into the foster care system because my adoptive mother was just couldn't accept the fact that I wanted a birth family. I wanted a family that just wanted to take me back. And I, I think I, if my grandmother, my birth grandmother, if she knew what was going on, she would have never sent me back, but I never said anything. I never said anything until mm -hmm. way later. Anyway, fast forward, I get out of the foster care system. I meet my husband. We're still married oh. now, 32 years later. Here we are. I have a son who's 30 years old and became an attorney. Um, so there's a lot of accolades and a lot of, you know, I'm very proud of my family. Um, so I learned years before that I didn't belong with either family, adoptive or 
birth family, I had to make my own. So I did. And so here I am. And I decided to write the book when I got very sick. I was in the hospital for three weeks and I said, I need to write a, a, basically a diary for my son because he didn't really quite understand where I came from, what I really went through. And then once I realized I was going to be fine, I said, let me write this book. And I did. It was basically a, a, a huge novel, memoir, many, many memories that I had to relive. I relived a lot of things to even today. I still feel that that hasn't scabbed over again yet. Right. I'm waiting for that. It'll come. But it almost felt like a hangover when it was published. It was like, right. oh, my story's out there. Wow. Okay. What happens now? You know, <laughs> it was one of those things. I didn't realize the attention this would get. And it, it garnered a lot of attention in Canada, even, even here in the U.S. and locally. And where I'm from, the reservation where I'm from, I was in both of their newspapers. And I also did the radio show, which that was a proud moment for me. And I think my family was, my birth family was incredibly proud that I came out with my truth. And uh, so, you know, and here I am. And today I'm still healing, I think. I, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I don't think healing ever ends. It's an everyday process, but my culture as I was growing up was not given to me. I lost out on traditions. I lost out on you know, cultures, how to cook, how to, you know, how you do things with a community. I was not given that because I was basically hoarded along with the horde in the house. You know, it was just, you know, one of those things. Had I lived on the reservation, I certainly would have learned what community was. Mm -hmm. I'm going to backtrack. When I was in foster care, I was in group homes because I needed structure badly. I did not know what structure was. And of course, at that, at a tender age of 15, 16, 17, you don't have any appreciation for that. <laughs> Whereas I do today. Going back, I had a set of foster parents that couldn't take me in full time, but they did take me on weekends and during the summers. And it was just kind of cool. These people were from England. Jeff and Elaine were from England. And they came and they made friends with many Native Americans throughout the U.S. They ended up starting or co-founding the Connecticut River Powwow Society. Mm -hmm. We had thousands of Natives that would come to these powwows. It was kind of a gift to me, basically to meet so many people in Connecticut or who came to Connecticut and just get to know these people and to know customs and traditions and learn. So these people, Jeff and Elaine were a complete gift to me. And even today I still, you know, I still see them and, you know, they're, they're happily retired out in Arizona. So I'm happily ready to go out there anytime to visit <laughs> and um, still go to a Kachina dance or a powwow out there and just, you know, listen to the music. So I think that's a big part of my healing. And they were, they were absolutely incredible towards me throughout my journey. And even today, you know, so I'm so glad to have them and my birth family too. I'm very, very glad to have them as well. I'm still in communication with, with most of them. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's been a blessing. That's been a blessing. That doesn't mean to say that I'm fully healed as I speak about I'm still learning. I'm still researching. I'm still trying to see what First Nations, what First Nations is all about. I'm part of the First Nations um, society and I'm, I'm Mohawk. So there's, um, there's other nations out there as well that, that are part of that. And it's a process. It's a process. Being adopted in my situation is a process as I'm sure it is for everybody else. Any adoptees, excuse me. Oh. Yes, I, 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 
I'm listening to your story and I think it's really incredible. There's so much to unpack. So let's kind of go back to one of the first things that you said. You wrote the book and you wrote it for, in a way, you wrote it for your son because you you had gotten sick and a miracle yeah. happened where you were able to heal in a different way and, and get stronger. Mm-hmm. How has mm-hmm. writing this book, how has it released any, any sort of pent up feelings or any sort of uh, hurt that you were feeling inside that maybe oh. you hadn't dealt with? Did it help you heal a little bit? It's, you know, Kat, yes, it, it, it was very cathartic to write this. There were times I just wanted to quit, but I said, no, I can't. I can't, I have to keep going with this because again, I've heard so many other adoptee stories and I'm like, if I can just help one person and just tell them that they're okay, you know, Mm -hmm. and you're going to be okay. It just takes a lot of time and still takes me time today. It was, it was a big closure for me because I was finally able to put my adoptive mother to rest and she died a while back. And, um, the one thing I remember, and I was the only one in our adoptive family, I was her daughter. I, I didn't have any siblings with her or anything. I was the only child, basically. I was, I was raised as an only child. Right. I didn't have a whole lot of help in my adult years from the adoptive family. And when she was going through what she was going through as far as dementia and being very, very sick and me being right. there until she took her last breath, I actually asked her. You know, I talked to her as mother and daughter and, you know, I hoped I was the daughter that she could finally be proud of. I hoped that I was somebody that she really loved. And I actually asked her, I said, mom, do you love me? In her words, and in the best that she could, she whispers back, she says, I guess. And she went into a coma after that. So it took me a long time to heal uh, again, to just kind of like scab that over when I wrote about it in the book. I was told that was very powerful part of my life. And it was today when I wrote that book, it still hasn't, it's still oozing a little, but I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm doing, you know, it take, I've learned part of my healing. I've learned to breathe deep and I have to, I'll put on some nice flute music. I'll breathe. I'll meditate. I'll do everything I can not to just feel that, you know, like I am kind of right now, but they were words and it was the best she could do and that that's what i have to deal with you know not, i don't want to do. say deal with but that's what mm-hmm. i have to think about no i I, I completely understand that this is something that when i explain my story i i say to people where uh growing up i didn't really understand why my adoptive mother was the way that she was i only knew that she did the best she could with what she knew how and that, exactly. that is all I can do. And all I know mm-hmm. is that because my, both my mother and my adoptive dad, uh, father have also passed recently. And what you're talking about, I one bajillion percent understand. I, I relate mm-hmm. to it on a very deep level. And it's, a, if it's, it's, it's a very powerful moment in life. So for many people, it is, it is a very powerful thing to, to read and to kind of relive and remember so growing up, let's talk about the relationship slightly for a little bit with your adoptive mother. I know you, when you were introducing yourself, you said that she was a hoarder. How did the hoard, how did the hoarding impact you emotionally as a child oh. when you were younger? So the hoarding, mm-hmm. 
again, you know, my mother did the best that she knew how, Right. you know, the hoarding impacted me to the point that I couldn't have friends. I think a lot of the neighborhood friends thought I was just a weirdo. I didn't have many friends growing up and I went to Catholic school. That impacted me quite a bit because Catholic school was not supportive at all, at right. all. I actually had a nun corner me in a coat closet saying I was not God's child because I was adopted and I was Native American. So, oh dear. yeah, yeah. Um, something you'll never forget, right? And Catholic school was not kind, you know, at yeah. the time. They always looked at the child and blamed the child, you know, yes. and the parents had to go along with what the nuns or, you know, the teachers, you know, wanted to do. And then I remember leaving Catholic school and I found out later it was due to financial reasons. Um, I went to public school, which started becoming even more of a nightmare. So the hoarding affected me. We barely had running water. You know, she barely flushed the toilet maybe once a month. Right. You know, it was it was disgusting. She had a hot plate, never had a refrigerator. She kept styrofoam coolers to keep milk or, you know, other stuff cold. If we had ice cream, we would have to go to a Dairy Queen. You know, just just stuff along that along those lines it was everything every corner was packed i had a cot i slept on in front of a dresser where there were holes in the walls i'm sure there were creatures that crawled over me in the middle of the night but i you know we won't go right. there and you know it's funny as i was an adult and i had to put her in a nursing home i had to go back into that house after so many years nothing was touched the right. holes in the walls were still there. The cobwebs were just puffing out of those walls. I didn't even want to go into the basement because I knew. I knew what was down there, and that was a big nightmare. It took me five years, honestly, to to clean out the house. I had to hold the town off from foreclosing on taxes. I paid a lot to get all of this stuff out, which ended up starting an eBay career. Okay. Because she had a lot of collectibles in there that were worth quite a bit. Why she didn't sell them, I don't know. She was a huge Avon representative to the point that I realized she was buying all the stuff for herself so she could be in competition with some of these other ladies that were in, in the Avon business as well. But come to find yeah. out, she never really sold all this stuff. So I had boxes and boxes and boxes of everything. Right. <laughs> and then, um, you know, it just, so it wasn't good. It wasn't healthy. Right. I was not living in a healthy house. I had depression. And my mother, I'll never forget my mother telling people, she's angry. I don't know why. Right. Mom, why? I'm angry. Oh, my right. God. You know, people right. don't understand me. Today, they understand me. Right. Crazy. And I think it's different where, huh, you know, your, your, your parent isn't always going to understand, especially, I mean, in no. this situation... I, I say that everyone kind of takes hoard of something. Like I hoard, I, sure. I'm a writer, so I I hoard journals, notebooks, stationary pens. I I mean, when I was back at my old house, I had a whole desk full of that stuff, untouched, un oh, sure. not written in, you know, pens never used, and I just I love it. My father would hoard papers. We had tax papers from like oh god, I don't even know what year in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. Um, he even hoarded yep. some of his parents' papers. And my mom would hoard wreaths, like Christmas wreaths. Everyone hoards oh, wow. something. Wow. So I, with with your situation naturally being so much more extreme, 
I, what I'm hearing from when, when, what you're saying is that it impacted your confidence, your, your comfortability to go and speak to other people and want to make friends. Like, it's almost like you wanted to make friends, but you were also afraid to bring them back to the house out of fear of judgment. I couldn't, I wasn't allowed. Right. Yeah. So I wasn't allowed to bring anyone near the house. She didn't want anyone right. in the house. She didn't want, it was, it was awful. And you know, the, and, and two, and being inside that house, you know, she was mentally abusive and physically abusive as well. You know, when mm. I started getting angry, right. She used to own apartments. So she had this one tenant who had no problems beating his children. Right. No problems. He gave my mother a belt. He said, you use this on her. She'll behave. Right. Yeah. She started using that on me. I didn't behave. It got worse. Right. You know, so, right. you know, she just wasn't understanding and it was just one of those things. So I'll never forget. And I'm going to, I'm going to go into the night. I finally left. I had come back from Canada. Right. I'm going and... to go into that. I came back from Canada and she mm-hmm. was so angry at me and she was being very abusive. And mm-hmm. um, to me, I was pushing back. Right. And one night I pushed back. And she came at me and I ended up with a bloody nose, a black eye, um, a few other bruises here and there. And then she went out, she went and got the police. She said that I started and it wasn't true right. at all. She comes in the house, she says, and this is in my book as well. She comes in the house and she says, there's a policeman out here. He wants to talk to you. I said, why, what did I do? You know? So finally she pushed me outside. And she's, you know, the officer introduced himself and he says, I understand you two are having some trouble. He said, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Rice, and that was her name. You know, if you just let this, you know, simmer down, things will be okay in a couple of days. I'm sure it'll be fine. She looked at him. She says, I'm going to murder her tonight if you don't take her. And she probably would have. Hmm. So he ended up having me go back into the house to get a few things. And he took me to a shelter. And that was the last time I was in that house until she ended up leaving her house to go right. into the hospital. Okay. And then, you know after that. And the state actually asked me if I would become her conservator because there was nobody else in the family that would do it. Right. So of course, you know, right. and today the family, the adoptive family, I don't have, I have no contact with them whatsoever yet. We're friends on Facebook. You know, I get that. Um, they mm-hmm. all know I wrote a book, but right. I haven't heard word. Right. You know? No, that I, that part, I also very much understand on a very deep level. Let's talk uh-huh. about how you, when you left, and let's talk about you finding out that you're adopted and then going to find yourself because you found oh. out that you were adopted. Let's talk about that journey and you going to the reservation okay. and what that was like when you actually went there. So I, I once I found out I was adopted, boy, was I on this one track mind. I'm going right. to find my birth It's like family. night and day, you know, it, it, day. everything kind of makes find sense. Them. Yeah. I'm going to go find them and you know, it's going to be wonderful. My birth family is going to rescue me, blah, 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 right. you know? Right. So come to find out my adoptive mother didn't know my birth mother's name. Okay. And it's funny how things happen because about a month before I confronted her, I have mm-hmm. an older brother who actually wrote to her, said, I understand I have a sister. Can I be in contact with her now? This makes sense because she didn't want me in the house anymore. She kept asking relatives and friends to take me in. Right. I wow. think she was afraid I was going to find that letter. I agree. Yeah. 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 That makes 100%. so much sense. So mm-hmm. despite everything that was already bad enough, she didn't want me finding this out. So she ended up, you know, you, you got to leave, you got to leave. I can't have you here. Blah, blah, blah. 
So she finally pulls out the letter and I'm like, I want to meet them. And she kept saying to me, no, 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 you can't meet them till you're 18. Yeah, I was going to tell you when you were 18 anyway. She was going to tell me when I was 18, probably trying to kick me out of the house then. But on the other, on the other side of the coin of that, I don't know that she was ever going to tell me, to be honest. Right. So anyway, I was, boy, boy, I was on one track train there. And um, mm -hmm. so I started looking up, I started begging to call Canada to, to call somebody to find a phone number, you know, which I did. I ended up finding a phone number. It was the wrong phone number at first, but this person knew my family, gave me the right telephone number and come to find out it was my grandmother's telephone number. So I called wow. and long story short, my grandmother gets on the phone. She says, I'm your grandmother. Oh my God. You know? And she says she would have my birth mother call me the next night. And Sharon did. She called me the next night and we had a nice long conversation. You know, it wasn't much of a conversation. I'm 15. She's 35. Right. Right. <laughs> But still, like the two of you were able to connect. We were able to connect, and it was a nice. Yeah. We we talked about you know different things. She asked me if I had a boyfriend. You know, she asked me about school, and you know just mm -hmm. things like that. So she was kind of down on my level. And then after a few few more phone calls, I told Leah. I said I want to go to Canada. Well, that started a big thing. Um, and I asked Sharon and my grandmother, "May I come up for the summer?" Oh, they they were so happy that I was right. going to come up, but they never talked to Leah, but Leah finally relented and said, all right, you can go up there. So I think this was her way of telling me not to come back, you know, right. so she buys me a one-way bus ticket, which I thought it was a round trip and come to find out it was a one-way bus ticket. Oh, I'll send you another ticket. Right. So, um, I get up there, the train, the, the train ride, the bus ride up there was long. It was nine hours. I really prefer a five hour drive right. <laughs> over nine hours, <laughs> no, I get that. but you meet interesting people along the way. You, you change buses and then, you know, you get to, you get to Montreal and you have to stop for the border and um, finally got, got to Montreal and it, God, it was such a beautiful city. It really is. And then I finally got to the reservation and wow, beautiful. We're right on the St. Lawrence Seaway. You see Montreal across the way and you know, it, you're not living in long houses or wigwams or teepees or anything. There were modern, modest right. houses right on the reservation. One was a big mansion, you know, or another one could have been a regular house or a ranch. It, it just, you know, you, you had your local stores and you had your local mall in the next town over. So it's really, it was like, it was like going to the next town over here, right. but without street names. There were no right. street names. Even today, there are no street names there. So you kind of have to go by either a grid or call the person <laughs> and say, hey, I'm here. Where can I go? Right. <laughs> but um, anyway, it, it's just, it's beautiful, you know, and I, I met, I have a very big birth family up there. So that night, that first night I got up there, it was like one big party, but boy, was I exhausted. But I couldn't sleep because my mind was spinning at 15, right. you know, when I met my brother, met oh, many yeah. cousins, and we all kind of hung out and, right. you know, trying to get to know each other a little bit, you know, and uh, got to know my aunts and, you know, and I think my birth mother was just overwhelmed. Right. And she kept it's begging me to forgive her. She cried that night. She, Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I, and honestly, even till today, there was nothing to be forgiven because she couldn't help herself. You know, she right. was being forced to give me up. She, she already had a son and my grandmother was raising him and she was not ready to be a parent at the time. I don't think. And I think honestly, if she could take it all back today, she would have. 
she wouldn't, yeah. you know, she's just that kind of person. She's a beautiful woman, beautiful heart. You know, she just, she, she will never forgive herself. I don't think, even though she knows there's nothing to forgive, you know, in my right. grandmother too, on her, on her deathbed, she asked me to forgive her. And I said, right. there's nothing to forgive. You did the right thing. And I only had my grandmother for two years, maybe. Okay. But I yeah. have her letters to me. So it really, oh, right. yeah. that makes a big difference to me. It does. You know? Oh, oh, she was a wonderful woman too. You know? Um, and of course, while I was up there too, I was angry. You know, I kept making long distance calls and I ran up her phone bill to like $200. <laughs> oh, wow. But I paid her back. I, I'm sorry. You know, I hope you forgive me. And, you know, once she really kind of knew the truth, she was like, fine. You know, right. there was no big deal at all. So, uh, but, but leaving there, I felt a sense of, because I never told them anything about how I was being raised or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I had, I left there after a big fight with Leah to send me a ticket. I didn't want to leave, but yeah, I missed home. It was right. so strange. Right. It was so I strange. I, yeah. I think my destiny in life was not to, again, I say it was not to be with either family, but to make my own. So it kind of like forged my own path. You know, I went to three different high schools through foster care, um, but I graduated right. and I went to college and I graduated that and here I am. <laughs> so um, let's talk about your uh, foster care experience after, sure. after having kind of, well, after having found yourself in your heritage, right? And mm. you have like a deeper understanding of who you are and you realize I, I'm, I, it's time for me to forge my own path. And so you go on your own and that, like you said, you were in the foster care system. Walk me through that. Cause you said you, you just said you went through di three different high schools and how was that sort of transition? Like how did everything kind of affect each other once you were in foster care? Was it difficult for you? How was school and how, how did you get along with people? Yeah, it was difficult for me in my first foster mm -hmm. home. Um, right. My first foster home, they were just in it for the money. So they didn't really care where my friend Peggy and I went or where we were, as long as we were home by like 10, 1030, you know, and if we weren't home by a certain time, we couldn't eat supper or whatever. We all right. see you later, uh, you know, yeah. um, you know, and they had other kids there too. And their adult son was there. And, um, right. you know, I think he tried a few things with us and it was just like, you know what, I think it's time to go. And I told my social worker about this, who was assigned to my case. And she's like, all right, she says, let's, let's see where, where we can put you. Mm -hmm. So I was working at a convenience store at the time. And one of the managers, he and his wife, I guess, were looking for a foster kid or whatever. And then he knew about my story. And he said, why don't you come live with my wife and I? Mm -hmm. Okay. The state thought it was great because they could age me out. And I was 17 at the, or 16, 16 at the time, I think. And, um, that didn't quite work out. The, the mother, the, the, the Connie was just not, um, I don't think I was who she thought I was. I think she thought I was going to be somebody I could be molded or something like that. It just wasn't quite right. that way. Um, so I ended up leaving after a few weeks and the state said, well, let's put you in a group home because you really, really need some structure. Right. I kind of fought that a little bit, but then I was told, look, if you don't go to this, you're going to go to juvenile hall. Oh, okay. I'll take the group home, you know? <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's so very extreme. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was very extreme. And, right. um, you know, I was, I was rowdy. I was a rowdy teenager, you know, there's no question about it. So, 
so I took the group home. I was like, okay, you know, I'll take right. the group home. And it was tough to get me structured. I, I totally agree. Totally mm -hmm. admit that. And then after about a year and a half, they put me in what was called an independent living home for, for girls. Yes. And I think mm -hmm. I was 18 or 19 at the time. I could have left the States program, but they said, stay, just stay. We'll pay you to stay. So they gave me a monthly stipend okay. and they did. They taught me how right. to cook. They taught me how to iron. Doing right. laundry is not my forte. Um, <laughs> my husband does that these days. What, you know, they taught me how to, how to, uh, how to um, balance a checkbook, you know, wow. things like that. So I really appreciate it. I had to be in college. I had to work. Okay, no problem. Right. After two years of that, I think I was just about turning 20 and they said, you're ready. So I, I went out, I got my own apartment and I lived on my own. Now, mind you, I couldn't go back and forth to Canada a lot. I did go back and forth for my grandmother who was sick and dying and I did go back for her funeral, but I couldn't go back as I was leaving the group home. I mean, you know, in right. hindsight, I almost wish I did to did go back up there to live, but mm -hmm. I met my husband. So there right. with that. <laughs> Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason when it's supposed to. So. so I would go up there, you know, once or twice a year and just, you know, see my birth family a lot and get closer to some of my cousins and, mm -hmm. you know, just, just, just be up there while I'm up there for a week or two. And then I, I would come back, you know, and then we have our son too. And my son, adapt mm. to being part native American as well. And truly fell in love with his family up there as well. So that, that, right. that to me just, you know, fills my heart right there. That just sealed it right there for me. So, you know, Aww. what I couldn't give him, I think he got on his own. Right. That's a very, what you just said is a very powerful thing. What I couldn't give him, he was able to get on his own and it's not, it's Absolutely. not really on his own because it's, it's truly like, it's through your, your biological family. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. So, yep. you know, in a way, like they're paying it forward. Like, even though they couldn't be there for you, they are there for your son. And it's, it's, oh, absolutely. it's a whole level of community and it's beautiful because it's something that you weren't used to. Uh, you were bouncing around a lot. There was no stability. You had a hard time. They said they would put mm -hmm. you into juvenile hall if, you know, if you didn't stay <laughs> in the program. But you, you were able to get stability through a different way. And I think the, the contradiction between the two, it's just very heartwarming to see that for your son, it comes through your biological family. Oh, absolutely. And they, 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 they just adore him, you know, so that part made my heart just fill and it was like, oh, great. And I know they love me too, but you know, for me growing up the way it was, the, the love part, well, that took a while, you know, right. it took a while, but now I realize it. And, um, and after writing the book, it was like, Oh, Hey, and they have been so supportive, you know, so that right. even helps me more, you know? And, and then again, on my own going through powwows and listening to the music and just watching, watching people dance around in a circle around the fire, around the drum, that's right. what gives me peace you know, and learning about animals and spiritual animals, our clans and whatnot. Yes. So I have bears. I'm, I'm part of the bear clan. So in our, in our tradition, your mother, if they're part of the bear clan, wolf clan, turtle clan, stuff like that, that's who you are. Right. So I have bears all over my house <laughs> and I, I truly believe in the spirit of being very strong and boy, am I headstrong and bears, bears are strength. 
and that's where I, I think I, I get the strength to go on every single day. You know, uh, it's just, that, that's who I am. Absolutely. I, I, th- I think, do you feel that through your, obviously through your experiences, it not only made you who you are today, but it made you, how do I, I'm not sure how to word this. I feel when we're when we're kind of just going through whatever it is we're going through, we're we're growing up uh, essentially. We don't think about how we're going to be. We don't think it's going to be okay. If the, what's one piece of advice that if you could go back in time to your younger self, what is that piece of advice that you would give your younger self? Breathe, breathe deep. It's going to be okay. It will be. It may not feel like it. And believe me, I have plenty of times where I felt like just jumping off a cliff. Mm. No, don't do it. Don't do it. It's going to be okay. You'll figure it out. It might not be today. It might not be tomorrow, but it will happen. You know, I even still do that today. I'm almost 55 myself. So I still, I still have those moments. It's like, okay, breathe. You know, even when I have an argument with my husband and I slam a door, it's, it's going to be okay. <laughs> you right. know? But when I think about my adoption and the way it happened, wishing it didn't happen the way it did. And I know my adoptive father did the best that he could, that he knew how. Mm -hmm. I realized it was all okay. You know, what wasn't okay was the abuse I got from my mother. What wasn't okay was the fact that my birth records were, were forged. You know, what wasn't okay was the fact that I found out that I had to get a green card at 42 years old. I was livid to find that Mm. out. Yeah, let's actually, you know what, let's talk about that really quick. Because I know that's that you're not the only person who has who has that experience. There are obviously many of the people who have to eventually go through uh, citizenship. Uh I know that the laws are have changed uh, over the years and it's and stuff like that but so let's talk about like what that process was like for you you just said you were i'm sorry 42 so i think oh let's see it was probably about 12 years ago yeah probably about 12 years ago canada was requiring passports now you could just go up with your license or whatever before or birth certificate and they just you know let you through coming Mm -hmm. back though they were starting to give me a hard time because mm-hmm. on my birth baptismal certificate, my my adoptive father said I was born at Manchester Hospital in Connecticut. And it was like, uh, and the birth baptismal certificate was from the church in Canada. Red flag. Right. <laughs> so they were starting to give me a hard time about it. And I said, all right, I probably need to apply, apply for a passport. Right. What could it hurt? So I applied for a U.S. passport. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. You know, I... I I didn't know. So immigration calls me and says, uh, hello, you can't get a passport. This birth certificate is fraudulent. I was shocked. I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what to say. I said, well, here's the situation. And they said, yeah, sorry, you're going to have to get this rectified with Canada. Okay. So I called, um, I called the membership services on the reservation and say, we need to get this fixed. I was born there, but my birth certificate says I was born here in Connecticut, which was a lie. They said, yeah, nothing we can do unless you get proof. Well, where do I start? (laughs) You know, thank God, Sharon, my birth mother was willing to do anything I could so I could come up and visit. 
So she signed off on an affidavit for me. I had to get the records from the hospital I was actually born at. Right. They gave it to me. So I went and I actually applied for a passport in Canada. They even called me and said, we can't help you. You got to get this rectified. And again, I wrote a whole chapter on this in my book, a whole chapter. Yeah. I was just frustrated. And, and that, that actually helped me closure right there. It was like, whoo, okay, I'm good now. So I had to write a letter to the Canadian government. Um, it's called Etat Seville, which is vital records, I believe. And mm. I wrote them a whole long story. I gave them all the medical records and said, you know, this is what happened. This, I'm surprised, did not raise red flags to you people. I yeah. need to get my birth record rectified. However, we couldn't put my birth parents on there to save scrutiny because I knew my birth father would never, ever sign off. Mm. That's okay. We're okay. We'll just leave Lee and Tom on there as my parents to save scrutiny. Perfect. Wonderful. They, re they rectified my birth certificate. I was able to get that taken care of to, to the tune of a few hundred dollars. And I finally sent it back to the passport agency in Canada. They were like, oh, thank God. We didn't think they were going to give you, you know, your birth certificate. I got a Canadian passport. So now I'm able to travel really with ease now. And um, I had to get a green card here. And that took two more years. Yeah. I went through three interviews, two of them very harsh. And finally, the third time I went in by myself and said, look, the, the second time they wanted they wanted birth certificates, long form birth certificates of both sets of grandparents. I didn't have $500 to spend at the time. They wanted my grandparents to prove that I was Native American. They wanted, oh, so I went okay. in there. I I kind of like read them the riot act and said, I don't have this money. Um, I have proven everything. I had other paperwork to prove that I was Native American. I right. don't understand why I have to prove myself even further because I've been here for 42 years why you're asking me for this now. Right. So the girl said, my mother-in-law just went through the same thing. Have a seat over there. Okay. I was waiting for armed guards to come and get me at this point. Right. Oh, so I kind of reorganized my binder for like, you know, for like an hour while she was doing something. And she comes back out. She calls me back to the window. She says, you should have your green card in two weeks. I wanted to jump over and kiss her. Right. <laughs> and my yeah. husband and I, we were very, very grateful because, you know, well, I wasn't really afraid that they would deport me because I knew I could get back into the U.S. You know, it was just the the whole principle right. of the thing, you know. So I got yeah. the green card. I'm good now, you know. But it still, it was it, for though? two or three yeah. years. It was horrible. Right. Absolutely right. horrible. It's you know? just, well, that it's a whole it's a whole separate. Uh, thing especially with uh, adopted children who who are older uh when when they're adopted when they come over to the states uh whatever the case may yeah. be i know that in, in america the law has changed it has since been updated um yes. <clears throat> to prevent to prevent things like what have ha has happened to to you from happening to uh -huh. others which is a uh, a very good thing so i'm also well, trying not to I'm sorry. The, the thing for me too is in, and for all adoptees international, right. please let's have the correct paperwork. Yes. You know, please, please, please have the correct paperwork. Make sure it's done truthfully and please tell your child that they're adopted. <laughs> yeah. That's just, that's just me. You know, don't hope, don't withhold. Excuse my cat in the back. He's being a little nosy. Kitty. <laughs> so cute. Oh. Aww. 
so cute. <laughs> um, He's being so, nosy. Mama's, you know, mama's busy, too busy for him. <laughs> oh, that's okay. So what is your advice for, for adoptees and adopters and, and foster families? What would be your advice? Well, for foster families, I, that's an easy one. Be honest, mm -hmm. be honest with the kids that you take in, be honest mm -hmm. with them, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, please, please share with them if they're old enough to understand. Yes. Right. For adopters, again, it's honesty. Love your children. That's what I want. Love your children. Don't, mm -hmm. don't make them out to be a void in your life because they're not, you adopted them for a reason. Right. You know, it, if you couldn't have children, I'm sorry for that. But if you adopt, oh my God, make them your own. You know, that, that's my thing. Make them your own. Right. Um, I, agree. I think when my father died, my mother just did not know what to do. She really didn't know how. You know, she couldn't have children of her own. And I think when he died, a lot of her mental illness came back and it was yeah. just, you know, it wasn't a good situation. And I think within that family, and I'll never forget her sister, one of my favorite aunts ever. I'll never forget her saying, our children were put here to serve us. And I was like, whoa. That's so funny. I'm, I mean, I, I'll it's not funny. I'll never forget that. It's not funny that, 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 that you said that. And like, that's the, no, that's I know, the I mentality. Know. It's, I say it in that way because, uh, it's, it's a, it's a very, that exact thing is exactly what I experienced where I, I make the joke that I'm Caterella. Like my name is Kent, but I'm Cinderella and you mash the two together. Cause I am just, I was just a servant for, for my family. And it, it, wow. it really proved to be true after my parents passed, like. It, it was, I saw everything, you know, it, 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 it all came it to really light. Does. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I wonder if that's like a generational sort of thing. I don't know where that mentality sort of comes from. I think you're right. It's, it's so interesting to me. Cause I just, I, I, I speak to so many people like yourself included and so many people who adopt because they can't have children and not one of them has ever had that sort of mentality, has ever said that. All of them are, are very loving, caring people who are so excited to to have this child in their life and in a way where they they want to nurture them to be the best that that child that they can be. Right. And it, it's it's beautiful because I never had that. And I love hearing that from people mm. when they say that. Mm. So I just I, I say it's funny that you you that mentality came up, mm -hmm. but I just I understand it. <laughs> It strikes a nerve. It really does. It strikes a nerve because I never it felt does. like I was here to serve. You know, I, I would do what my mother asked of me, of course, but most of the time. Um, <laughs> no, I totally understand um, you know, it. Yeah. Just, ooh, I'll never forget her saying that. Her, yeah. her nieces and nephews were here to serve all of them. Okay, auntie. But I have my biological aunts. They're nothing like that. You know, they're right. they so doting. Right. You know, so it's just kind of funny. You know, my birth family is completely doting and just loving. And I give that back, you know. And, and, and that's the good thing. That's, that's the important thing is that you, you try to pay the goodness forward and respect gets respect. That that's how I feel, you know, but yeah. So, you know, in, so after going through all of that and whatnot, how do I feel about it all now? Mm -hmm. it, it's a day by day process. Right. It really is a day by day process. Yeah. I, again, I write my book for to help that one person who needs it. 
you know, if I help one person, then I feel like my purpose is, is there. My purpose has been fulfilled. Um, but I also feel like I have more of a purpose too. I do plan on going to several events coming up and just, just to be with other adoptees and to kind of feel that, feel that energy and that vibe, you know, because I think all of us adoptees are a family on our own. Oh, that's so true. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful thing you just said. All, all of us yeah. adoptees are a family all on our own. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So to close off the interview before we end, what is one piece of advice that you would give to those who are trying to begin the healing journey? Don't rush it. Mm. Don't rush it. Feel it. Yeah. Feel it. And when it becomes too much, breathe. And then go back to it. I'm not saying I'm fully healed and I'm not. Oh my God, mm. I'm not. After all that I went through here and, and just... You know, I don't, I don't speak to any of my adopted family here. They have, they know about my book. I haven't heard word one, whether they're feeling something about it. Maybe they're embarrassed. I don't know. Ashamed. Who knows? I'm okay with that. I'm okay. If they don't speak to me, that's on them. That is on them. Mm -hmm. But I'm, you know, that that's, Going back to what you asked me, just take it day by day. Take your healing day by day. It's not going to, it's not, you're not going to heal within a month. You're not going to heal within a year. There's still things that are going to pop up. There's, there's still a lot that pops up for me too. And like recently, I'm starting to see pictures of my grandmother. I'm starting to see pictures uh, or legal documents on ancestry. I'm starting to see that about my, my parents and things like that. It's just, it's, you know, so many, so many things come up. I see obituaries come up and I'm like, I'm sorry. I never met you. <laughs> right. you know? Especially with my birth father's side. I met him one weekend. And then after that, I never heard from him again. Right. But I did see that his mother passed away and I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't meet you. You know, I see that a few brothers and sisters have passed away. Sorry. You know, so, you know, there are sad parts to it too, you know, but I deal yeah. with that every day and then I, 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 I move on, I move on, but then sometimes the, the actual initial shock, the initial you're adopted, that will come back to me often. Right. Yeah. So again, day by day. I think the words you are adopted are very powerful, but I think the words, who am I, are, they hold more weight and more value yes. because at the end of the day to the adoptees who are listening and to the adoptive parents who are also listening, we decide who we are at the end of the day. We, we hold that power within ourselves to choose our own path. We can come from such darkness and go into light and have a beautiful life. So yes. The question we should ask ourselves is always, who am I? I meant to, I meant to mention the path, you know, mm -hmm. I've kind of created my own path by writing this book and I'm right. also working on a second book and that's about healing. I'm excited for that book. I'm very excited. For Probably it. be I out in another year or so, so we can catch up. <laughs> oh yeah. That would be great. I would actually like that a lot. Yes. Oh, um, I would love that. That would be great. <laughs> we'll talk about the other book part two in about a year when it drops. Thank you.
But I would like to thank everyone for joining me on this episode of Chats with Cat. A special thank you to Michelle, our wonderful special guest. Stay tuned for another episode of Chats with Cat every other Wednesday on the Voice of Adoptees podcast. Always remember, someone somewhere is thinking of you. You are not alone.